0: Welcome to Open Source Underdogs and the first podcast recorded in 2020. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 43 with Chris Nova, Chief Open Source Advocate at Sysdig. Chris, who also goes by Nova, has contributed to Kubernetes and several other open source successful software projects and startups. She's currently a leader in the Falco project, a next-gen intrusion detection tool that is a quote-unquote incubating project at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, also known as CMCF. My mission this year is to interview more women who are open source business leaders. So when the opportunity presented itself to interview Nova, I I couldn't resist. But this podcast was a bit of a challenge for me. I interviewed Loris Deguani, the CEO of Sysdig, a few episodes back. So I wanted to stray a little from my normal business model format. It was also really tough not going down the cloud-native rabbit hole, although I think ultimately I, I couldn't resist. So it's slightly more techie than normal, but I hope you enjoy it. Personally, I found Nova's perspective really thought provoking, but you didn't tune in to hear me. So without further ado, here we go. Nova, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So how did you end up at Sysdig?
1: Well, I had come out of my third startup that had gone through an acquisition. And, you know, I took some time off from work. I, I did some traveling and just kind of. It was the first time in my life and in my career where I was able to take several months off of of work and just kind of mentally reset. And I started to evaluate the uh, the industry I was working in, and I knew I wanted to stay working closely with with cloud and cloud native infrastructure and, and Kubernetes, but I, I wanted to pivot a little bit. And I started looking at the the available spaces or sub departments of the industry. And one of the, um, the things that really stood out to me was, was security. I felt like security was, was one of those things that you kind of look at it always as a, um, an afterthought, right? You don't really ever wake up and, and design new software on day one to be the most secure implementation. And so I felt like we were finally there with, with cloud native to start having more involved security conversations. So I felt like there was just a lot of room for, for innovation in a field that I already knew a lot about starting off with was a new spin on it, which was getting involved with security. And then Sysdig reached out, and here I am.
0: So Sysdig makes a ton of data available from the cor- kernel, as I understand it. And Falco, the project that you're working on, tries to filter that data to make some actionable security information, maybe about intrusion detection.
1: The definition that kind of really made it it sing in, in my mind and resonate with me was, when Loris, our, our founder, I think you might have already spoken with him, the way he explained it to me was basically we take the kernel as the new source of truth. Traditionally, if you look at how you would be auditing or, or attempting to observe a, a system, the network uh, was usually kind of the the most fundamental element you could you could get down to. And the thesis behind that was, if it's happening at the network layer, we know it's true and we can trust it. And as we moved into cloud native, we realized that, you know, TCP packets were not the smallest element anymore. So we took it even down a layer further than the network, which is where the, the kernel comes into play. And I think you, you said it best yourself. You know, we, we take a lot of information coming out of the kernel and then we try to turn that into something meaningful for a human or a team. And that's really what Falco does is it tries to be that, that connection point, that adapter between what would otherwise be an unreasonable amount of information coming out of the kernel, and then actually trying to give you something that can help you tell a story.
0: Falco looks like a pretty impressive tool. but I'm wondering, has it been able to drive business opportunities for assisting the company?
1: So I, I think if you look at open source and, and what that means to anybody doing open source in, in any industry, it's got a, a new way of thinking about how you you engage with with other people In the industry other organizations in the industry other folks in the enterprise and i think the easiest way that i can describe the success i've seen with open source is just looking at it as there's fundamentally a difference between building a solution for someone and building a solution with someone and i think open source is the latter of the two is it it gives you and it gives your organization an opportunity to collaborate with other folks in the industry and that's where we're seeing a lot of these these hybrid solutions. You know, we could have open source software called Kubernetes running in a, a public cloud provider using a CNI implementation from a startup in San Francisco, all of which being secured with Sysdig. So we're seeing these, these multi-level, multi-cardinal solutions because people are building an open source and realizing that it's, it's actually more effective to build a small tool that is easily consumable than it is to try to build this monolithic solution to to every problem under the sun.
0: Valco has been incubating at the CNCF. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about whether CNCF was the right home for the project.
1: I've been involved with the CNCF for years now. And you know, I've you know, like I mentioned earlier, I've worked at a few startups. We've donated and built and contributed to a handful of projects. That ultimately ended up in the CNCF. And I think if you look at open source in the enterprise and having a, a neutral third-party organization such as the CNCF that that can just help with things like like governance and infrastructure and supporting the projects and doing it in, in such a way that it's, it's neutral and unbiased for the project itself ultimately just makes for a, a healthier project and a more wholesome experience for the maintainers and the end users. And I think the CNCF does a really great job at embracing this idea that ultimately in open source, the end user is, is the new customer. They're the new consumer of, of the open source project. And, and giving them that customer-like experience is something that you really see with the CNCF and I think really drives healthy communities.
0: So one of your goals, I guess, when you joined Sysdig was to help build the governance infrastructure for the Falco project. Have there been any challenges along the way for making that happen?
1: I feel like when, when I joined, Falco was, was already on a trajectory to being a, a first-class security solution in, in cloud native that is open source. And I think I was able to come in with, you know, like I said, I've, I've done this a few times. I've been involved with the CNCF for years. I've been working on other more household projects, such as Kubernetes or Helm or Envoy. And uh, I think I was able to come in and bring everybody together and kind of double down on our approach to to open source. So I think there's a lot of work that we had to do, that we have yet to do. But ultimately, it all comes down to this idea that at the end of the day, Falco belongs to everyone. It's not Sysdig's tool. It's it's a tool that was originally started by Sysdig and has has already started to grow and be used in new and exciting ways. We have end users who are using Falco for things that we never even dreamed of originally. So I think having that, that open source governance, that open source model of we're going to make our decisions in the public and we're going to give the broader community an opportunity to get involved with these decisions as we're making them has been a really big part of the direction that we needed to take the project over the past maybe six months or so.
0: In addition to end users, have there been any other vendors who join the Falco ecosystem, maybe who are looking to commercialize Falco as part of their product or make an offering.
1: So I mean that's something that we've tossed around with here at Sysdig. And I, I think anytime you have successful open source, somebody's gonna automatically go to, okay, how do we how do we wrap this up and stick a an SLA on it and then start offering some sort of first class support for a project. And in my mind, once an open source project reaches that stage, like that's a sign of success, right? Like that's ultimately where you want you want to end up. And I think Falco is right on the cusp of us getting to more of an enterprise open source solution. So I'm excited to see both how my company, Sysdig, is able to take these new ideas and run with them and potentially see other other organizations and other companies in the industry do the same thing as well. So I feel like we're on that like horizon of of this finally happening for the project, which is pretty
0: rad. I guess moving your project to a foundation is it's a laudable thing to do for the governance of the project. But not, not all open source companies do that. What are some of the trade-offs that you have to make when you decide to move your project to a foundation and to move the governance to sort of a more open process?
1: So I feel like the if you look at it like in flight we we always talk about you know exchanging of velocity for altitude and i feel like in in open source we have that that same paradigm of uh, as as you go either more on the foundation side of things or more on the agile side of things you're going to be exchanging enterprise opportunity with the ability to be agile in other words If we, as a company, had an open source project and we didn't have open source governance and open community around it, we ultimately would be able to iterate much quicker and we would be a much more simpler and and less complicated process for us to drive features and to deal with debt and to to build a new functionality. But we would be sacrificing this this ability to build with other folks in the ecosystem. And if you look at, at Kubernetes, if you look at, a lot of the sub projects of Kubernetes, they do operate at a, a, a less agile speed or a less agile velocity. But ultimately, that has empowered many different companies in the enterprise to come together and start working on building holistic solutions for everyone. I think a great example here is there's an infrastructure project called Cluster API. I had helped start this project, I think, two years ago now when I was at Microsoft. And, and the whole point of the project was for us to come together and start to standardize how folks install and manage Kubernetes. And you know, like it's taken two years for us to get where we are today. So it's, it's happened a little bit slower than most people might be used to, but we now have a standardized holistic API that anyone in the ecosystem can use. And we've actually seen large cloud providers, VMware, Microsoft, Google, they've all come together and they've actually started building to this new interface. So again, we're exchanging that velocity for that ability to be collaborative.
0: I remember uh, when I interviewed Matt Mullenweg from WordPress, he mentioned something very similar, how we could build it faster if we just build it ourselves, but the community slowed us down, but we ended up with better software. And uh, one of the other things I remember from that, that podcast was, well, just thinking about it, WordPress is, is really such a central part of so many ecosystems they're not monetizing automatic. The company behind WordPress isn't monetizing every user of WordPress. There's companies that do WordPress hosting and WordPress development. So there's this big ecosystem around WordPress, which is really impressive. And I'm wondering, do you see the Falco project as coalescing that kind of ecosystem? And how do you get there? Or is that, or is that even desirable?
1: So I, I think, you know, the CNCF, enables this type of, of collaboration, period. I mean, and that's if you look at the projects, this is something that is is baked into the governance model. When we were proposing Falco to move from the sandbox, which is the most introductory level a project could be at, to incubation, which is where we are now, there was an entire section and an entire conversation around this concept of vendor independence, which is effectively this idea that if if one vendor who is working on a project decided to take a step back or or take a break or, or pull resources back, would the project still be able to grow and prosper and be healthy in the same way it is now? And that's a fundamental like philosophy in, in the CNCF. And so um, I think you're going to see that with, with every project. And so I think us doubling down this for Falco was, was really critical to us getting where we are with Falco.
0: So you alluded to some of the interesting business use cases that maybe you didn't anticipate when you designed the product. I'm wondering if you could share with us what some of those are, because I I was also wondering, it seems super interesting, but how do people actually use it?
1: Yeah, I did a a presentation at KubeCon in San Diego with a gentleman named Abinov from a company called Frame.io, and he went into... A lot of detail about how they're using Falco in a very limited way, which is funny because I spend the first half of the the presentation talking about how Falco can audit the entire kernel and how we can, you know, we can start to uh, process and assert various signals in the kernel that go for for every system call that would potentially be running in Linux. And then Abhinav walks on stage and says, Oh, we only use it for three. And it, it was just kind of this, this, funny moment where it's like, if, if that's what they needed in their pipeline, which if you go and you watch the video, you can, you can see the use case and, and why they were only interested in a subset of these metrics here. You can actually see that Falco is dynamic and configurable enough for them to use it very concretely in a very small, but very uh, precise way for exactly what they needed. So I think you see that in a lot of different open source, but especially in Falco.
0: Could Falco consume information from other sources other than the kernel and and make sense of it in sort of the same way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that that we've been circulating in the Falco community, and I think this is a great example of us not being able to move as quickly as we wanted, but in exchange we're getting feedback and insight from the community, is we're working on um, a long-term supported release called Falco 1.0. And one of the things that we learned pre 1.0 was that there was actually a lot of value in taking other input sources other than just the kernel and enriching the kernel information with these, these other input streams. So a big feature of 1.0 is going to be making our, you know, secondary input streams much more dynamic and much more configurable so that folks can start to plug other information into, to Falco when it comes time to, to building that Story or that alert system that they're looking for with when it comes to detection and anomaly detection and, and security.
0: Is there a marketing strategy at Sysdig for Falco?
1: Yes and no. So we we obviously have our our corporate marketing strategy. We have you know an entire department here, and we have a lot of similar goals, but I feel like they're they're implemented in in different ways. I think the easiest example here is. You know, Sysdig targets customers and, and users of, of our platform, whereas Falco targets end users, which effectively are our customers, but the relationship is a little more like we'll give you a foundation and a scaffolding to come and build with us. And you'll be able to do that, you know, effectively for free, but you're not going to be getting a lot of the the first class features that you would be as as like a commercial partner or a commercial um, consumer of what Sysdig has has to offer. So again, you know, depending on your use case and what you're looking for, it, it kind of gives us an opportunity for, for folks to get involved with more of the, uh, it's going to cost more, but it's going to be easier, more resilient, more reliable, and more powerful. Or you can take the, uh, the free open source approach, which is going to require rolling up your sleeves and, and getting involved in, in the community. And I think what's really interesting from a business perspective is watching as different implementations change from one side to the other. Over time and seeing how 2019 it was a, a commercial user and then moving forward they they moved over to open source or flipping that around and, and going from open source to to commercial so it's exciting to have that flexibility as you know departments grow at, at other organizations at their needs change as their systems change what they might be looking for from us it, it could potentially change and and having sort of an array of, of opportunity and avenues for them to get involved has been really powerful for us.
0: What is the difference between an end user and a customer?
1: I mean, I think the easiest way to say this is an end user is someone who takes advantage of open source software in its most raw form, whereas a customer is in exchange for goods and services where we're willing to provide, you know, some sort of monetary compensation. So again, we'll use, we'll use Kubernetes here. Kubernetes is open source. If you or, or me wanted to go and, and go to github.com/ Kubernetes, we could potentially download Kubernetes and install it on some servers and then try to go sell those, those servers that have a working version of Kubernetes running on it with some sort of service agreement. But there's nothing that's really preventing us from doing this. And in the same way, you know other folks who have been contributing to Kubernetes for years and maybe even were you know like Google the original creators of Kubernetes, they have both the open source avenue as well as the the more commercial avenue as well. And I think you see that with, you know, tools like How GKE is Google's enterprise version of the open source software you could go download for free.
0: So if if you could see more partners join the ecosystem, what kind of partners would you like to see join the Falco community?
1: Honestly, I would like to see the security industry come together and, and start working together as a community more and more. Like I mentioned earlier in the the interview, moving to security, I I had to relearn a a lot of things. And one of the things that hadn't really been in my career up until recently, after joining a security company, was this concept of of very strict competition. And this this concept of, if I have some piece of of intellectual information, I'm going to kind of withhold that. And, And that becomes part of our IP and what we have to offer. And I think, you know, we saw the same paradigm in infrastructure and in cloud. And ultimately, if if you look at the security industry, following applications, following infrastructure, following DevOps, it's ultimately, in my mind, going to end up in the same way, which is the industry coming together and realizing that it actually makes more sense for us to work together on something than it is for us to to fight each other. So I would love for, for more folks, whether they're security vendors or security consumers or even just users of security tooling at the end of the day to come together and start you know, exploring different ways of, of securing systems in an open source and collaborative way.
0: I think that's actually true. Um, I remember speaking with Michael Howard from MariaDB, and he mentioned to me, I don't know if it was on the interview or after, that security software is not inherently open source, that normally it would be commercial, proprietary, licensed uh, all all the above to keep it closed. And so I I do think it's the idea of there aren't uh, tons of open source security tools. So are there other open source security tools that maybe you're identified that you can think of this as a trend or is Falco really at the forefront of this?
1: So I I think, you know, and this is if I get too off in the weeds with with ranting about security, please please feel free to stop me. But I think if you look at security, having a holistic to approach to to two main categories is really what you want to see when it comes time to to taking security seriously and fully locking down a system. So I think to give a really simple example of of this, if we look at solutions like Kubernetes RBAC, which is basic access control, just describing who can do what and when and how they can do whatever it is they're trying to do, and potentially rejecting requests if they do not meet whatever criteria you you set forth. But we also see this in Linux with things like SetConf and SE Linux. And it's this idea of we're going to try to prevent somebody from doing something if, if they're violating some sort of policy we have in place. So there's other CNCF tools like um, Open Policy Agent is a great example here. There's a, an open source tool from Microsoft called Gatekeeper that is an implementation, a concrete implementation of open policy agent that attempts to effectively do the same thing pod security policies do in Kubernetes, but from uh, a an, an, an concrete implementation of, of OPA or open policy agent. But again, we're in the situation where, you know, these solutions, you know, everything I just mentioned, all attempt to prevent somebody from from doing something that they shouldn't be able to do or to prevent some application from doing something that it shouldn't be able to do but if you look at the history of security you know that's that's only part of the story right you know I, one of the things i've been saying that I, I really feel like is a powerful statement is at the end of the day there's no such thing as perfect software right even even linux you know the the most well known Open source operating system in the world, the the largest open source project in the world, we still get CVEs. There's still exploits. You know, there was Heartbleed. There was a handful of critical CVEs that have happened in my lifetime. And those are fundamentally never going to stop. And anomalies and things that you aren't expecting are fundamentally never going to stop. So I think having this preventative side of things that you see with, with tools like access control and policy enforcement running those in concert with tools like Falco that are more of a detective side of things really gives you, like, uh, you're kind of coming at the problem from two different fundamental perspectives, which kind of allows you to to double down on your security approach. So short answer, yes, we see a lot of other tools, but we don't really see anything that's as focused on runtime detection as you do with, with something, say, like Falco or maybe even Wireshark, which was Loris's original project.
0: So you're the author of an O'Reilly book on cloud-native infrastructure, which I just ordered.
1: Thank you. You should buy several copies of it for all of your friends and all of
0: your family. (laughs) Makes a good Christmas present. But this is a very new knowledge domain for enterprise IT staff. And reading your book's a good place to start. But I'm wondering if you have any more thoughts on how companies can get up to speed on cloud-native infrastructure.
1: I think the book is a good starting point, but but more importantly, one of the things that I I really want to stress with folks is to really have an understanding of what this phrase cloud native even means. And and you can go to CNCF.io, and they they actually have like an entire essay that was put together that that attempts to define you know what what cloud native means to them. But I, I feel like it's a it's kind of like a personal choice or a personal journey you have to go on, right? Like. It's like you know buying a car. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're going to buy the car with the features that, that you need, that you like. But that whole process starts with you test writing things and doing research and talking to people and going to look at cars and spending time understanding why this car may be better in this situation or might be better in this situation. And I think cloud-native infrastructure follows this the same paradigm of you have to look at the ecosystem as a group of resources, and you can take these raw resources that are available in the ecosystem, my book included, and those raw resources become part of what you would use to potentially build out your your finalized system.
0: A couple last questions about your experience as a veteran of being a part of open-source startups. If you're looking to join an open-source startup, what would be some of the things you'd look for that would be good signs that this company knows how to use open source as part of their business model?
1: I guess there's two answers here. Coming at this from somebody who's I'm I'm in a, a you know a very senior, very high visibility role here at Sysdig, so I, I almost wanted to to join a company that that needed needed some guidance and needed some help. If I was to join a company that was that was perfect and open source was already solved. You know they were already doing everything, quote unquote, by the book. It wouldn't be very interesting or exciting for me, and I, I would hope that they would not be as interested in having somebody like me come in and, and uh, for lack of a better term, do what I do best, which is helping to to drive open source adoption and collaboration. So for me, I, I wanted to find something that had opportunity to grow and had opportunity and potential for us to to move into really really great things, and I felt like Big was that perfect. Intersection of high potential with um, the right place at the right time with security. Now, if if somebody isn't as insane as I am looking to uh, get involved with something that's going to be a lot of a lot of work and a lot of effort, I would say the first thing I always look for is how are decisions made, both at the company, both on your team, and both with open source projects. And another thing that I, I always kind of view as is, is a red flag is this concept of open source announcements, right? Like if you think about it, an open source project by design should be open to the community. You should be able to go and read or watch or listen to the decisions that are made, the, uh, the features that are driven, the choices that the community is deciding on. And you should be able to, at the very least, observe these, and if not, potentially shape and, and, and govern these things. So anytime I, I see somebody doing some sort of open source announcement, to me, that that's just evidence that it wasn't an open source project to begin with, that it was, it was built behind closed doors and then ultimately handed over for uh, the sake of publicity and and not originally built in open source as as you would see with, with a lot of the other CNCF projects like Kubernetes and like Helm and like OPA and like Falco.
0: Last question about open source entrepreneurship. So if, if you are in the, the shoes of an entrepreneur who wanted to use open source as part of their business model, do you have any advice for that entrepreneur?
1: Get in there and roll your sleeves up. At the end of the day, open source is you're not going to have that that first class experience of, you know, click here, put in your credit card number and then poof, everything, everything works. Like it's going to take understanding what's going on. It's going to take contributing to the code, contributing to the project. And you're really going to have to accept the fact that you are responsible, just as responsible as the open source project is, is everyone else working on it.
0: Nova, thank you so much for joining us today. First guest of 2020. Yay. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was really nice talking, Lydia.
0: Thank Special thanks to the Sysdig team and Amanda McKinney at 280 Blue for helping to coordinate the episode. The link to the presentation that Nova mentioned can be found on the episode webpage on opensourceunderdogs.com. Transcription by Marina Anchakovic. Music from Broke for Free, Chris Abriski, and Lee Rosevier. The podcast Twitter handle is FOSS Podcast. That's F O S S Podcast. I have a big announcement. I just found out that my talk about the podcast was accepted to OzCon in July. If that happens, I'm really looking forward to sharing some of my thoughts on what all these episodes mean. The next episode features the current CEO of Puppet, Yvonne Wassenaar, who brings us up to date on Puppet success and business models. Don't miss it. Until next time, thanks for listening.